You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen, for a Q&A. It is Q&A with Drew Meredith, financial planner. How are you going, Matt? Pretty good. Good to be back. We invited you back after last month. Yes, I'm very yeah. surprised. The census was positive, so you get another go. Invite popped into my Outlook inbox and away we go. Accepted away. For those that don't know, Drew actually lost five kilos on the back of that episode from sweating so much he was put under the pump. So we'll see what happens this time around. We've got some hard-hitting questions for you, mate. I'm bulking now. So. <laughs> no carbs though, apparently. So we do have a new segment which we want to introduce today. So we'll get to that in a second. But people will know you from the Investors Podcast, where you and I co-host the weekly show on a Saturday morning. We answer questions there. The second best podcast. And tell dad jokes. Dad jokes. Second best podcast. Uh, interesting there, Kate. It, and it's fair to say it is second best because by audience size, the Australian Finance Podcast is one of the biggest. So we can't and really... And quality, obviously. <laughs> and quality, indeed. But Drew is a financial advisor. So he gives one-on-one financial advice, typically to retirees, but also people that are accumulators that are probably a bit further along their journey. So if you're in your 20s or something, you probably, uh, we can help connect you to a financial advisor, but maybe Drew's speciality is not necessarily people in their 20s. We can help you out. So get in contact if you do want to speak to Drew. You'll find a link in the show notes. As always, we do an extra disclaimer because we are talking about questions. And even though Drew can give one-on-one financial advice and we can give general advice here on the show, we do not give personalized advice through a podcast because it's simply not possible in Australia. So any of the answers that we do give to you is strictly limited or are strictly limited to 
general financial advice only or general financial information because we don't know your personal circumstances, your goals, needs, objectives. You should consult a financial advisor before acting on the information because they will sit down with you and take into account all of those things. So with that wonderful disclaimer done and dusted, Kate, how can people send us questions? There is a quick and easy link in the podcast description and the show notes that you can click and send a question for any of our four podcasts. So questions, comments, it's all appreciated. I know we get some great ideas for things to include in Money and Chill and our Q&A episodes. So there's Q&As happening everywhere. If you want business, there's a business podcast Q&A, there's property, there's investing and finance where we cover a bit of everything. Yep. So please send them in. And once again, like we love your questions. We love your feedback because it actually is what drives most of the show, that uh, the feedback that we get. So without further ado, Kate, we are introducing a new segment, seeing that Drew is on the show and he absolutely loves these segments. So we do have a buy, hold, sell segment. For those of you that aren't familiar with finance, typically on a lot of finance channels, you see a buy, hold, sell where there's like a stock or an ETF or something thrown up and the expert somehow has an opinion on all these different things. Instantly with no research. I refuse to to write them anymore. Yeah. So Drew and I have a bit of fun with this on the Investors Podcast because we think it is a bit of a, we just think it's totally wrong as a profession because it's not as simple as buy, hold, sell. And a lot of it's quite dangerous. So what we do is we take a bit of a, a different bent to it. And it's interesting because one thing might be a buy for someone, a sell for someone else and a hold for someone, all for different reasons. So adds to the confusion, doesn't it? It does. And there's a lot of noise in finance. And on, and then whenever it comes to investments is over what period? could be a buy for a week or a sell for a year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Kate, what are the three buy, hold sales we want to put to Drew? All right. So we can get audience suggestions for next time. So use that <laughs> link in the show notes. But I quickly came up with three words. Not sure why these three are on my mind, but I've got a rice cooker, a unicycle and a dragon fruit. Okay. So rice cooker, buy, hold, sell. The first one feels like a bit of a stitch up because there's a lot of talk about my carb intake in the office. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an old-fashioned guy, so I, I'd probably cook rice the old-fashioned way. Is that the absorption method? <laughs> yeah, okay. In a pot. So no for the rice cooker. That's a sell for me. Sell. What about a unicycle? Yeah, I see my exercise as being quite conservative as well, so I'd prefer a two-wheel bike. A bicycle. <laughs> Maybe it's a hold. Definitely not a buy. What is a unicycle? Is that one of those big wheel things? It's one single one, wheel. uni. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like university? Like Uno. <laughs> one Owen. Just one wheel. Okay, one wheel. Finally, this is a quite this will be a controversial one in the community, I imagine, Kate. It's a dragon fruit. Buy, hold, sell. Could you get a geared version of dragon fruit? Because I'd I'd go long dragon fruit. Like a plant or a smoothie? Or like a like a lever, you know, G Gus the leverage ETF. <laughs> long dragon fruit. Just like bonus dragon fruit. He would be not only just having one dragon fruit, he would want to Pay for one, but get 10. Get 10 back, exactly. exactly. Okay. Great addition to any smoothie. Yeah. Like dragon fruit, I don't know if you guys have had these. And like look beautiful. Overseas in like Vietnam. Oh my gosh, they are so amazing. Got to admit. But there's two types of, there multiple are. types of varieties. There's like and the white you one. you need to be careful one. because at Coles the other day, they had dragon fruit for just a couple of dollars and it was a white one. And they do not taste as good as the red ones, which are just beautiful perfumery flavoured inside. Yes, they are indeed. Okay. So here's a question. Maybe this is a question for you, Kate, to start off with. It comes from Linda who says, love your show's great content. I always want to access some information from the podcast, which you say can be found in the show notes. I can't locate the specific info, only your general links. Do I need to be a paid member to see the links to the information? Thanks. Kate? 
absolutely not. The show notes are available to everyone. So usually there's a link in the podcast player that will take you to the show notes page and then you can go down and find the specific episode. Otherwise, you can head to raskmedia.com.au, R-A-S-K, media.com.au, and there is a little drop down that says podcasts and you can head on to the finance podcast page and scroll down and you'll see all the different episodes there. Yep. So just head to Rask Media if you're ever confused. From there, there's a general podcast page which directs you to any of the four podcasts, as well as there's heaps of articles on ETFs and shares and what's going on in the economy and all those types of things. You'll even see Drew's morning articles in there. Or you can just Google the title of the podcast and the show notes will pop up usually. quite. That's often how I find previous episodes we've done in the back catalogue because we've been recording quite a few yeah, for we, quite a while. We do a lot and we've been doing it for a long time. So it's pretty easy to get lost. So just Google the title of the podcast and it should come up. But normally there's a link in your podcast player that says show notes or a head to Rast Media or something like yeah. that. So, But they're definitely free. Yes, definitely, definitely free. free. You can send us a DM on Instagram and we can send you a link so you can go straight there. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Next question. Memes appreciated. Memes. <laughs> Instagram as well. Great addition. Great addition. <laughs> Expert insights. All right. So the next question, now I've lined Drew up specifically to answer this question, is about franking credits. Am I allowed props? You are allowed props, Drew. If you partake in a dividend reinvestment plan, what happens to the franking credits? Do you still get them or not? And I have added an extra question for you, Drew, to actually explain what franking credits are. I thought that was me that put that. <laughs> Give a brief explanation of franking credits. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, the perfect start. And is if I can take you through a history lesson or education, we've joked about on the other podcast about how Owen's younger than franking credits. Mm-hmm. But it does. It's important to understand that when you're making investments into Australian shares. So, franking credits. If you think about it, the the reason they were initially introduced was to reduce the double taxation that can occur when you're investing into shares. And if I'll say unpack that, but I hate yeah, Drew loves to unpack things. It's uh, almost <laughs> unprecedented, actually. Now that we mention it. So if you think when you're investing in in a company, you're a shareholder that's entitled to a portion of that company's profits. That company pays tax at the company tax rate. It used to be 30%. Now there's a little bit of a, a range on there, but assume it's 30%. When the, the company pays that tax, the profit that's left over can be paid out as dividends. So the company makes a decision from after-tax profits to then pay out dividends to all of the shareholders. As a shareholder, that income, regardless of where you hold it, will be taxable, whether it's in your own tax return, in a super fund, in a trust, or whether where, wherever it happens to be, which essentially means if you had $100, I'm going to test myself here. If you had $100, you pay company tax at 30%, you've got $70 left. If you're then paying that that as a dividend, let's just say the tax rate's 50% because it makes it <laughs> easy for this example, then you've got 35 cents left over or you've actually paid 65 cents in tax on the same $100 of profit. Because and the that, company paid some and then the individual paid some. Exactly. So $35. It's like, yeah, 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 of the hundred. Yeah, sorry, not thirty-five cents. <laughs> that would be a decimal point was pretty pretty important. Yes, there. but essentially, and that's the highest tax rate. It would be the highest tax rate in the world if that was true. So you know, the top marginal tax rate in Australia is about forty-five percent. So that would be on top of the top marginal tax rate in Australia. So what a frank credit is is the tax that the company paid on that profits initially is paid out as a is given as a credit attached to your dividend that can be used to reduce your own tax. Now, I can probably keep expanding on that. It's probably important. (laughs) 
And so when you say, for example, when you receive that dividend, you have to report both the dividend that you receive in cash as well as the franking credit. And as the name suggests, it's a credit for tax that's already paid that can be used to reduce tax to be paid. So both the franking credit and the dividend get included in your tax return, but a line at the bottom of your tax return has uh, basically including all your franking credits, which then reduce the amount of tax payable. And there's another stream of that that goes into superannuation, which is probably not. <laughs> it's probably too much. <laughs> we don't have the time for that. Yeah. But that's where franking credit, refundable franking credits is probably the way that they're explained by a lot of people that if you don't have to pay any tax, that franking credit can be refunded to you in cash as part of your tax return. So in your example, the $100 of company profit, instead of it ending up as $35 in the person's pocket, they would pay 50 Exactly. Because the company's already paid 30 why would then you have to pay 50 of whatever's left after that? Exactly. You're getting a credit for the 30 paid and you're only being taxed at your own personal tax rate. The, the, the thing that Drew was mentioning there at the end is that uh, you can get a refund if your tax rate is below the company tax rate. So what the company's paid, which is, for example, 30%, if your tax rate was, say, 10%, well, then you should theoretically get 20% back. And that's what you get back at your tax return. But you still have to file your tax return. It's not just magic. Like yeah. even if you're a retiree who has a 0% tax rate, you still need to file your tax return. Yeah. And if we come back to the question, because sometimes we get asked, do you have to pay tax on dividends? Yeah. And with dividend reinvestment plans. Yeah. So the dividend reinvestment plan, is it's, it seems like it's automatic, but it's you actually making a decision to reinvest the dividend that you've received. So under, under a dividend reinvestment plan, you still get the franking credits and you're still taxed on the dividend that you paid. You're just making the decision after that, essentially after the tax, to reinvest all of your dividend back into the same company. So it is, you still get the franking credit, you still get the income, they'll all have to be included on your tax return, and you're just buying more shares. So it's, even though it seems like it's automatic, you still pay tax, and you still get your franking credits. And there's no real ways to hire, when you buy, when you're owning shares in a company that's paying any sort of income, there's no real way to avoid the tax on that, whether it's in DRPs or other alternatives. We won't go there. We won't go into the uh, the accounting for uh, a DSSP, which Kate has talked about before on the show, which is a totally different beast, but we can save that for another time. Yes, it's a little bit niche, but yes, tax Speaking either way. Speaking of, Drew actually is a tax financial advisor. So what that means is even if you're a financial advisor, you still have to get a separate tick of approval to say that you can talk about the tax implications of your investments. And ongoing education as well, requirements. Yeah, absolutely. So some advisors can't talk about it, which is surprising, but Drew can. So question mark here, Drew, is tax on ETFs. And this comes from Haley. says, I have recently sold VTS, which is a Vanguard total US, US total market, share market ETF, VEU, and I have owned them for less than three years. Do I need to complete any forms for tax purposes? So they bought these two ETFs, held them and sold them. Do I need to complete any tax? forms? Nothing more than a tax return would be the simple answer. But then to step back on that and understand the tax implications of any sort of investment, you, there's two types of tax you're going to pay and technically they're the same thing. One's income tax on the dividends, distributions or interest that you receive, like if it's a bank account, an ETF or a share. And the other one's capital gains tax, which is taxing the proportion of profit that you've made on an individual investment from when you bought and sold. And that's what this is referring to. I say they're the same because you're actually, you need to include your whole, your whole capital gain in your tax return that is then taxed at your normal marginal rate anyway. So we think about them as different tax rates or different taxes, but they're actually 
one and the same. They all go in the same tax return. So in this case, there's no additional paperwork that you have to do. You just essentially have to do within your tax return a, a capital gains tax worksheet, which your accountant or if you do it yourself, and it will say you'll have to calculate the difference between what you paid for an investment and what you sold it for, as well as potentially applying the discounts that are available for people who have held investments for more than 12 months, which is... Capital gains tax discount. <laughs> exactly. So if you hold an asset for more than 12 months and you're holding it in your own name versus other entities will stick to your own name, that the total gain, once you've accounted for costs, so like brokerage and other costs, uh, can be split in half and only half of the total gain is included in your taxable income and then tax paid at your marginal tax rate. So the ATO rewards you for being a, a longer-ish term investor. Somewhat, yes. But there's we've seen there's a lot of uh, a lot of headlines about all kinds of tax reform coming up as well, but uh, that's never going to change. Uh, there is this kind of unique thing in Australia, which relates to the fracking credits, where companies and investors have almost been incentivized to, as you heard, get a tax credit from your dividend, your fully frank dividend, rather than holding for long term and retaining and growing capital gains, because you tax more efficiently or to tax less on income, essentially. I would add one more thing to these two, if I may. VEU and VTS are tax domiciled in the US. So what that means is these funds are actually, for tax purposes, are registered US funds. So you will have had to have filled out, I hope, a W8 Ben form for these two holdings. And what that basically means is between the US and Australia, there's a tax withholding treaty. Uh, typically, a tax is applied of 30%, but with that form, it goes down to 15, if I'm not mistaken. And you typically fill that out, and Drew's kind of nodding. Sure. <laughs> you fill that out when you when you get the paperwork for your initial shareholding. And so you may want to make sure that that has been filled out for any withholding on dividends and those types of things. And that's probably the last thing that I'll add there, Haley. But nothing addition in addition at the end. No. Yeah. No, it should also just in your normal tax place. return. Yeah. Uh, next one. Okay. All right. The next one is about the cost of financial advice from Frankie White Knuckles. So, been listening to the podcast a while, which is awesome. Engaged a financial advisor that had some really great reviews, got really excited and had around 50K to start investing. But the financial advisors mentioned this concept, which I don't think we've ever said these words on the podcast before, called an SMA wrap fund. I don't think we can afford ongoing monthly advice, so it seems like a closed off way for me to invest. When suggesting retail options for way lower fees, they say they can't recommend those products through their services. Uh, this listener is feeling a bit lost. I know the principles are right and have been made to feel like 1% fees are nothing. What should I do? I said sup, dosh brains. <laughs> and help, help with an A. Said it help with a H-A-L-P <laughs> and EFTs. I love this. Sup, dosh brains. <laughs> so it's kind of why the valuable value of like your podcast and general advice is so high because the the range of financial advice and financial advisors, the, the market's halved. So you used to have over 30,000 registered financial advisors and now it's down to 16,000. So it's getting harder and harder, but also more expensive because when you have a lack of supply of something, the cost naturally goes up and the capacity increase reduces in most businesses too. So it's a very challenging question that we struggle with dealing with ourselves. You work in the office. It is. So the ongoing cost of advice and And, and what is an SMA wrap fund? There's, there's probably, there's actually three things, yeah. <laughs> which is quite common. So the, probably the main one to understand is what a wrap is. 
and you would have talked about platforms potentially on not on as much on, on this. On this one, so yeah. people would be familiar with say Perla, which is probably the most like, like a broker, kind of, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of like does it's trying to do a bit more than just shares. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I know SMAs from my previous life in yeah. operations at InvestSmart, but I don't think we've ever covered it on the show. No, maybe we should explain what they mean. Yeah, <laughs> just so, generally. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, a a wrap platform is essentially an administration structure that allows you to outsource all the reporting and implementation and legal work associated with holding your investments. So examples listed on the ASX would be BT, not really listed anymore, but Hub24, NetWealth, probably everyone's probably heard of those companies at some point. And basically you can hold your superannuation on there or you can hold your own investment portfolio on there. You put money on that you still own all the assets on there. You can buy and sell stocks, funds, ETFs, international stocks if you want to. And, and you they're get a typically single... used in conjunction with an advisor? Yes, most uh, advisor facing and advisors have to do all the implementation work behind them, the vast majority. And that's because they offer incredible efficiency, better reporting. And as an investor, you get a single report at the other end that you can simply plug into your tax return. It would have like 4K where you have to put your all, this, all the figures into your tax return. But that's only one part. So that helps with administering your portfolio. But generally, when this, in gen, general advice, the cost of platforms is not is quite high at a at a low balance like that because it's a, a percentage sliding scale. So in our business, they're not for everyone. There's multiple options for for multiple for different types of people and what their objectives are. And SMAs, you might be better at explaining than I am. <laughs> yeah, separately managed account. So used. I was familiar with them on the platform called Premium, and so you could have one model. So you might have a diversified high growth ETF portfolio and clients could pick that portfolio and the money would be invested and you could just press that button and their, their money would be automatically invested in that model chosen by the investment team. Yeah. And yeah, it's a discretionary model. So, which means that when you invest, you're investing on the parameters of that. It could be, we're going to buy 30 ASX listed shares and trade them actively based on our views. So, when you buy it, they could be trading, selling BHP next week and buying Woodside. You get told afterwards rather than asked what you're buying at the time. And you could change all of the client's models at once instead of yeah. having to make lots of individual buys and sells. So one of the things here is that this person said that their advisor said they can't recommend them. Now, I mean, we'd have to look into it, but can't versus don't want to is probably a different conversation. The reason why they would want to get you on one of these platforms is because it makes it easier for them administratively. So if they have 100 clients and they want to take out, say, for example, the VTS ETF, which we just talked about, let's say that was in their portfolio that they created for, for clients. And then this week they're like, oh, actually, there's a better ETF that we want to use. Imagine changing that for 100 different accounts. These platforms enable them to do it automatically. Take it out, put a new one in. Which might be something you're comfortable in five years with. Yeah. But it, it sounds like you're not at the moment. You want some kind of control and transparency over that. Yeah. And the difference, people might be wondering, well, what's the difference between a fund, like a fund manager and an SMA? The key difference is that you still own the underlying investments. Whereas in a managed fund, it's all pulled together. And it's a, what we call a trust. Yeah. You own the units, not the actual, say, ETFs that are inside. And that's where you can have you know, discretion and you can do things for tax and whatever. There's probably some context around the advice industry as well. So when he says the advisor can't recommend anything else, it is common. Yeah. So advisors have approved product lists. You, you know, our business has a very wide approved product list because we we own it. But some 
advisory groups will only allow uh, some dealer groups more so. So now I'm going to explain that too. <laughs> a dealer group is essentially a company that'll have, that has a financial services license that will then license hundreds, 50, 100 multiple other financial advisors and make sure they're providing appropriate advice. And you can imagine there's a diverse range of education levels around that 50 to 100 advisors. So some groups will limit the options that they can recommend, which could be the case here, or the, it could be the case that it's, it is very expensive to provide financial advice in the current environment. And that's why the quality of advice review has been out and affordability of advice is on the front page of every financial newspaper in the last few months. And that's so for any, for any advisor to provide personal advice, they have to provide you with a statement of advice and they have to understand a lot about you before they can do that. And you can imagine the cost of doing that, the amount of time involved, even if it's somewhat efficient, can be quite high. And that's why they would generally want you to go into an ongoing agreement to, to help. Is this something where you could get a one-off statement of advice where you could say, tell me, based off all this information, you've done the, the hours of work on fact-finding and getting to know me and my goals, can you tell me the portfolio that I should have? And I'll manage it from here. Is that something? Yeah, you can get? I mean, it's how we've where we we work sometimes, but it, it, capacity can be an issue. So we we're running businesses, and we we need to. Sorry, no, we don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, running a business and providing ongoing advice to a reasonable amount of clients. So one thing that Waddle can do is, depending on their ability to have like the financial planners available is they can actually do like a once-off statement but the idea is that like you take the once-off statement of advice and then you can go and figure it like you go and implement it yourself you go and do it all yourself and then maybe in a few years you come back when you're ready and you can take the models if you want to take it from there if i'm not mistaken Joe. yeah exactly there's it's just a balance for for businesses so if we're we're a busy firm that have 160 170 clients and then having to allocate the time to write new statements of advice. And this is why statements of advice are getting more and more expensive. And a lot of the times, which doesn't sound great, financial advice firms don't want to take on clients with smaller balances because they essentially lose money providing the advice and lose time. That's the kind of negative connotation that comes with it. Uh, but um, there are a lot that will provide that. We talk about our advice being split into ones up front. So telling you what to do, what products to buy, what investments you should put in, and the next part's ongoing. We always separate that discussion. It's not for everyone. I mean, that's why increasing financial literacy is so important. Because it's hard yeah. if you've only got $50,000. 1%'s quite a lot. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And the average SOA is 3000 Yeah. No, $3,500 for a statement of advice on a $50,000 investment. It's hard to justify. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. And that's why the DIY community needs like content like ours but if you are just if you are in, in this camp just reach out to us and uh, we might better even just push you to advisors that do this type of thing anyway usually yeah, you can chat to a couple and have free intro calls just to see what their fees are their product lists who they help there's definitely more moving and targeting you know providing more accessible advice and this sort of advice so could you might only need a couple of hours it might be an ongoing agreement but it's only a couple of hours and it's significantly less than one percent but there's definitely, that's where a lot of the growth we're seeing in financial advice is into helping accumulators and, and younger people invest. Probably like working out what you want to do too, how hands-on, like do you want to be the one making all the buy and sell decisions? How, how comfortable do you feel implementing, if someone gives you a plan, do you feel comfortable to implement that or do you need someone to 
uh, step you through the process on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So the next question comes, and it's about adding money to super. It's from CC, who asks, I just heard your 10 tools to automate, which is a great podcast, by the way. Thank you very much. There were talk about transferring money from accounts to super. So I think it's from bank accounts. What is the reason for this instead of using your employer to increase your super percentage? So what their question is, is basically instead of getting my employer to add extra money to super, oh, and Kate, you said on the podcast that you could just put money in yourself via BPAY or direct debit. What's the benefit, pros and cons, I guess? True. And different options. So there's yeah. the, the benefit is there's two different types of contribution you can make concessional contributions, which is what your employer would be doing for you or salary sacrifice. So before you pay tax, that's limited to $27,500 a year. Uh, and then it forms part of a taxable component within your super fund, which I'm sure will probably be the summer series on the investors podcast. Yeah, we talked about that in more that, detail yeah. rather than here. And then you've got non-concessional, which are contributions you make from after tax money that you've already paid tax on. And the limit of that is $110,000. So basically you're per person per year. So you're quadrupling the amount of money you can put into superannuation in any given year by using both of those caps would be, I think, one of the main reasons you consider that. And then there's other things like spouse contribution offsets, co-contribution offsets. Yeah. A lot of people do the like superannuation. We used to call this salary sacrifice. It's not as popular now, but it actually is a good tool to automate because you don't actually see the money. As employers, we have to pay 10% to employees regardless. So we have to pay it to the super fund. Um, but some employees might be like, well, for me, that's only like if I'm on hundred grand, that's only 10 grand a year. I've got another 17,500 that I could add and not be compromised from a tax perspective. So you have a choice. Do you then get your employer to add the extra 17,500 out of your pay? Or do you take that money into your bank account and then put it in and claim a tax deduction? Now, the reason I prefer that option is that it gives you flexibility. But some people, once they get their hands in the honeypot of their, you know, they get that extra cash in their bank account, they spend it. So maybe from the employer is a good option, but I personally just do it and do it via BPAY and then claim a tax deduction at the end of the year via the form available through my super fund. Yeah, I, I just like doing it personally via BPAY because I have that flexibility and some months are very expensive or you're going overseas and maybe you're just happy for your employer contribution that month and you're not really wanting to make an extra contribution. Uh, you've got to remember, Google the notice of intent to claim or vary a deduction for personal super contribution form. Yeah. It's an ATO form that if you want to claim and put it in your tax return because you made a, a personal contribution. You need, send it to your super fund. Yes, yeah. you need that form and send it to your super fund. They'll tell you that it's been completed and then you can pop it in your tax return before you lodge it. And that flexibility is key because and the the contributions you were talking about were only made available a few years ago. Yeah. You could never make that top up at the end of the year. Yeah. Your employer had to do it. Yeah. Exactly. And then you're locking into a salary sacrifice that a certain portion of your monthly income is always going. The other option gives you flexibility. And then in June, if you've saved more than you expected, then you can and and part of our ongoing advice is that we review every client's bank account and pensions and contributions in May and June every year and tell them what they've got left and what contributions they can make. So all these kind of advice. Yeah. But I've got some friends who've asked their employer to increase their super contribution percentage and that's the way they like it because it's just hands off. They don't have to think about it and that works for them. Yeah. I remember if you go back five or 10 years, some employers refuse to do it, which was silly. You pay the super. Is it much extra effort to... Not really. No, I you came can, and you said, can you pay 5% of my salary to super? You just change the percentage. 
Yeah. It's much easier with all it's super stream and yeah. clearing houses now yeah, than it used to be. Zeros just pushes it across. So yeah, it's super easy. But you've got to be careful that you don't go over that twenty seven thousand five hundred, by the way. So you don't you want to keep it under that and then you can always make the other type of contribution, which Drew was talking about, where you don't claim a tax deductible. And that's why it's important to do your notice of intent to claim. Mm. If you don't do that, you could go over other caps that you're not aware of. Yeah. And, and ensure you put your contributions in your tax return. That way you get the co-contribution or your spouse contribution. One thing that also happens is that most big super funds send you an email to say, have you uh, have you lodged your form? But make sure you're on top of it, like these guys are saying, before you do your tax return. Because you do want to claim it as a tax deduction. I so. remember my accountant, he sends out a, a checklist each year and one of the questions were, did you personally add any money to your super fund this year? And if you tick yes, he actually asks you, have you filled in the form? Have you submitted it? Have you heard back from your super fund to say it's been processed? That's cool. And this probably goes back to the capital gains tax question as well, because you can use those deductions to reduce any capital gains tax. The capital gains tax is payable from selling your investments earlier in the year. Yeah, yeah. That's a common uh, tax saving strategy or tax reduction strategy. So the final question comes from Regretful Lisa. And Kate, you've given it the title of starting at 30. What does Regretful Lisa say? Since turning 30, I've started to focus on saving and getting my finances in order as I was sick of living week to week. I spent 10 years working and not saving and feel I've got nothing to show for the past decade. Can I do anything to, quote unquote, get those 10 years back financially to improve my financial position moving forward? I'm saving for a home deposit. I live frugally and now I save 50% of my fortnightly income. Any tip? Well, I don't have a time machine, but if I did, I would let Lisa use it. I, well, that's a, and a little bit of salt on top. <laughs> a little bit of foam there, mate. But yeah, so do you get your 20s back? Don't be hard on yourself is what I'd say. That's probably my first thing. Yeah, I mean, the 20s, just throw away your 20s. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this is from a financial advisor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can't, like, you're at this point, you, you can't look back, you can't make it up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going can't to do anything about it. probably going to peak or better better earning years in the next 10 years or so, and you just put in the strategies in place now and, and don't let what happened in the past, you know, stop you from getting, achieving those objectives in the future. Let's had a motivational quote. Don't look back, look towards the future. <laughs> that was just and Put some structure and discipline in place. Eloquent. Pretty motivational speaker. <laughs> I feel like these are very blokey responses. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> no, okay. So seriously though, like you can't take the, you can't get the time back. So you've just got to, you've got to look forward. And the, the, the beautiful thing is that starting at 30 is actually really early for a lot of people. Like I know, Kate, you started way before me, like a few years before me. Uh, and we ha- I heard of a story of someone the other day who was 11 or 12 starting to invest. And I just hear that every time. And I just think that's just wonderful. But a lot of people hear those stories and like, well, I'm 35 and starting out. It's actually still incredibly young. Even people yeah. that are at 55. I remember Evan shared the, the story. His mum didn't start investing till 60. And now she, she loves doing it. Uh, I think you have to be really kind to yourself when you're looking back because you didn't have that information back then. So you can't hold yourself to a standard that previous you didn't have that information, didn't have those potentially those goals and thinking, well, what can I do now? Like small steps that I can take to build my financial confidence. It sounds like you're taking some great steps already right now. You've got a, a goal to save for a house deposit. You're knowing what you're spending. You're not living above your means. You're saving as much as you can. So learn as much as possible, put a plan in place, work towards it. Automate as much as you can. Automate, yeah. Yeah. 
and There's so many things you can think do. Think about it's wonderful. all the possibilities ahead of you in the next 10 years. This person also said they save 50% of their fortnightly income. Like that is huge. They don't, they're saving for a home deposit so they don't have, don't have the mortgage. mortgage which maybe they have rent. Yeah. That's still, they rent. That's, that's huge. Like 50%, if you can consistently save 50%, that is a very high savings rate and you will do a lot in your 30s by saving at that amount. Uh, once you get your home, build that emergency fund. Once you've done that, either pay down your mortgage if that's your preference or start investing. You can even ask, you know, start those roundup apps so you save a little bit. And I guess the other thing is like just dollar cost averaging. Is this one of those examples of the behavioral bias? Is it hindsight bias? Where or maybe it's the reverse of hindsight bias, where you struggle to make new, fresh decisions due to the decisions you made in the past, or kind of rerunning those. So, well, regret has a huge impact on our finances. It stops us doing a lot of things because we just keep looking at the things we wish we did in the past. And uh, we hear that so often on the podcast. People saying, "I wish I started earlier." Even the experts say they wish they started earlier. But number one piece of advice we get: all we you can do is. Yeah start with what you've got right now. There's nothing you can change about the past, but you can learn from it and mm. move forwards. Sounds like you've been studying this, Kate. I think I do what's called compartmentalizing. Is that right? Where you just put it to the side and try not to ever think. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really healthy, Drew. What sweep, trauma are you going Sweeping through? under the rug. <laughs> but it's like, if you listen to the other one, Zip or yeah, some of these some companies of bad where yeah. they're done, the more you're stuck on them, it's, it means probably worse than this where you lose 90% of your money in an investment. But being able to just put that to the side, accept that decisions are made in the past and how do you avoid that and and set a more, you know, concrete plan in the future. Yeah. Yeah. There was a purpose to that comment. <laughs> no, but it's yeah, it's true. And I honestly think that 30 is young. 30 is young. And you're younger than Owen. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew. So, so old, less a little bit. Um, no, but it's true. If you're at 30, you've at least got 35 years until you retire. And that's if they don't change the rules on super. So, and we're living longer than ever. Living long, like you have decades and decades of compounding, which means that even $1 invested today will probably be $20, $30, $40 by the time you retire, which, or maybe later in life at least. And so make the most of that. Make the most. Start today and invest with optimism because you've got so long and you're doing the right things. You're saving. You're proving it to yourself and onwards and upwards, I'd say. Cool. I like it. So if we've people, covered a bit. We've covered a lot. We covered investing at 30 and why it's actually pretty early in my opinion. Adding extra to super while you can do it with your employer or directly. There is a reason why some advisors do want to get you onto platforms and manage your affairs. It may not be for you. Maybe you can hunt around for a, a, an advisor who just does once-off advice. You can, you will pay tax on ETFs. Uh, Drew did mention the different types of tax that apply to ETFs. Also check out, make sure you've done that W8BEN form, which should come from your share registry. Uh, and then there was franking credits. Drew gave us a, a lesson on that, which was Really, actually, it was a really good explanation, Drew. I'm not just saying that. It was a really good explanation. It wasn't, I wasn't confident. <laughs> well, you did. When I thought of it in my head, it sounded better than... Where were your props? Uh, yeah, you asked for props. I'm gonna do, we're going to do a TikTok with props. <laughs> yes, so we're getting Drew on TikTok. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, uh, Linda and everyone, you can find the show notes at rasmedia.com. You can find all of the show notes there. I'd highly encourage you just to go there regularly if you like to read sometimes and not just listen to podcasts. So you like to read articles and see the resources and the, the PDFs and stuff that we do. It's all there. It's all free. Yeah, we probably haven't mentioned, but we've got like 10 different guides from 
broker accounts to uh, ethical investing, IPOs, shares. paperwork. I remember doing that one. Yeah, heaps of different guides. Actually, even they're super popular, that tax on shares thing, Kate. That ranks, I think, as highly as the ATO guide. <laughs> Which I'm a bit dubious about SEO. <laughs> yeah. SEO is my, my jam. But seriously, it's all available there on Rask Media. You don't need to be a member or anything to pay us for any, like you don't need to pay us for anything that you hear on the podcast. Yeah. And if you want to send us a suggestion for our little buy, hold, sell segment for Drew next time on the podcast, <laughs> if we can crowdsource all the suggestions, we'll put it towards all three of us. Yeah. That would be good fun. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And so uh, you can find out more about Drew Meredith and the team at Waddle Partners. There's a link in your show notes there. You can also get free courses if you are one of the people like us that love to learn about finance and want to do it for free. You can head over to Rask Education. You'll find a link in your podcast player for that too. Well, Kate, this is heaps of fun. Drew, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. And Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.